friends, this long week in between episodes seemed never-ending, didn't it? But here we are. My name is still Stéphane Dupier, <laughs> I am still your host, and this is still Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. Now, my mom always told me that good things come to those who wait. And since you have all been waiting so very patiently, the good thing I'm rewarding that patience with today is a truly unique story. So sit down, relax, you've earned this time with me and my guest Anna, right here, right now. Make yourself comfortable, put up those feet, and let's go! Oh, but wait, before we get started, if you like this podcast or even love this podcast, please make sure to rate and review it. Whether you're listening on Apple, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and tell your friends about it. Let them know how much you are enjoying this. It really helps us out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, let's get started. Anna is 57 years old, single as a Pringle and intentionally so. Although born in Hawaii as the seventh child of a big Irish Catholic family, she's been calling South Carolina her home for quite some time now. This is where she lives with her daughter Jenny and her son Casey. She had both children pretty late in life, Casey at age 37 and Jenny at age 39. Although she describes her parents as people who experienced great hardship in their own lives, she also says that they managed to provide her with a really idyllic childhood. Anna struggled to provide that same type of childhood to her own children, and she will tell us more about that in just a little bit. She married her first love, a man she met at the young age of 16 and ended up divorcing when she was 33. The fact that Anna is able to be with us today is a miracle in itself. Not only did she survive a stroke, depression and drug addiction, she also managed to live despite a drunk driver almost ending her life. Meet this indestructible champion of a woman with a southern mouth and a heart of gold, who calls herself a belly dancer extraordinaire. <laughs> I think you've already compiled your own list of questions by now, because this southern bell is interesting as can be. Friends, I think this episode is going down in history as unforgettable. Just like Anna. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about mental illness, depression, suicide, drugs, and addiction. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. There was a pretty popular show on Netflix not that long ago called Inventing Anna, the story of Anna Delvey, with an amazing cast, Julia Garner, Anna Klumsky, gosh, Veda Saltenfus from My Girl has really grown, <laughs> um, Laverne Cox, and many others. If any of you have not seen the show, definitely check it out. It's based on the true and mind-boggling story of a woman defrauding people without even as much as blinking an eye. Now, obviously, we do not need to invent you today, Anna, because you're very much here in the flesh. But before we talk about your actual life, let me ask you, if you had the power to rewrite your own biography without us having discussed any of it, and completely reinvent yourself. 
what would your life be like? I think it would be where I was just married once and stayed married and had my kids with that person and been Ma and Pa Kittle. That's what I'd done. Would you have lived in the same area? Would you have grown up as the same Anna in the same kind of family? Or are there any other things that you potentially would have changed? I, uh, I would have grown up in the same family. I would have just learned the lessons of life faster if I could have. And what lessons would those have been? The main one would probably be to believe people that show you who they are. I've always been one to uh, have the best hopes or thoughts. or If I love somebody, I, I have a hard time seeing they're bad. And it takes me years to find it and to realize that it's bad and never going to get any different. It takes me years. That's why I've been married both times in relationships for 20 years before I said enough, you know. You told me that you grew up in a large Irish Catholic family with parents trying the best they could against all odds and against circumstance to provide you and your siblings with an idyllic childhood. Can you describe your parents' struggles your childhood itself, and what it was like growing up in somewhat of an Irish Catholic version of <laughs> the Brady Bunch? Uh, my childhood was idyllic to me because I was the last of their babies, so they had grown up. My parents uh, had a whirlwind uh, relationship. My mother was actually engaged to someone else, having a big wedding, going to marry someone else, and she met my father. Three months later, she ran off and married him canceled the wedding, ran off and married him. He was from New York, and they he was in the service in the Air Force. So she married him, and around the world they went and had eight children. She was 17, and he was 21, I think, or 20. And uh, they started having children pretty quick. Like the first, they were married a year, and then they had my sister, my oldest sister. And then it was stair steps for, for the first four girls, and then... She had a few miscarriages, and then she had my two brothers and me. By the time she had me, she was 30, I think, 32. She had my sister at like 20 or something. And uh, so there's a big gap between the parents that they got and the parents I got. Uh, so we always, we weren't dirt poor. We always had a nice home, always had clothes and food. We just didn't have all the fancy toys that everybody got, but... My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked three jobs, worked hard. I always was fixing something, you know. And uh, But we did family things. We stayed together, you know. We we stuck together. Plus, we were an odd group because we were Catholic in the South, you know. And back then, in the 70s, and it was really, people didn't understand it, I guess. It was a lot more polarizing than it is now, you know. And... Uh, I had red hair and freckles, so, you know, it was hard to get along, so I stuck with my siblings. Uh, my parents, my dad came from a farm in New York, a dairy farm. His dad was a bad drinker, and uh, he left home when he was 15 and uh, lived with an aunt and uncle, and finally aunt and uncle talked my dad's father, my grandfather, into signing for him to join the Air Force, so he joined the Air Force. He was 17. 
and he retired out of the Air Force. And uh, that's about where I remember him. Right after Vietnam, he retired out of the Air Force and came home. I was five, and we moved here to South Carolina. So all my major memories are here in South Carolina. And uh, uh, my mom was born and raised right here in Greenville, South Carolina. Her dad died when she was five. It was Great Depression. And so my grandmother had two sons and her. So she really struggled to to keep them fed during that time, and which wasn't uncommon for anybody. But she was a single woman trying to feed three kids during the Depression and keep a roof over their head. And she was uneducated, so she didn't have good – she worked in the mill, you know. Uh, and so they came from – both of them came from poor families, struggling families, and they came together and managed to – not be rich, but we weren't poor by any stretch of the imagination. Not when I was coming up, you know. But they really focused on love and family. That's what they focused on. When we spoke earlier, you said that you have been struggling with depression since you were in your early 20s. Now, I'm very sorry to hear that. I have depression in my own family, and I know how emotionally tolling that can be on everyone involved, really. How did and does depression affect your everyday life? How are you managing it? And what would you tell somebody out there who's also struggling with mental health issues? The main thing I would tell anybody struggling with depression is to seek help. Uh, there's counseling and then there's medication. And uh, there's no shame in it. Like, there's been a stigma on it a long time here in America about having mental health issues. I don't think there should be a stigma on it. I think the shame should come when you when you struggle and your life struggles when you could get help and live a much happier life. Uh, I struggled when my early 20s because I would go and talk to counselors and I'd feel better and they'd say, we think you need to be on a mild antidepressant, you know. I'd take it and I'd feel like Superwoman. And as soon as I started feeling like Superwoman, you know, a week or so in, I'd be like, ah, I don't need this medicine. I'm fine now. And I'd stop taking the medicine. And then it'd be a slow decline back into the sadness, you know. That took me uh, uh, until I had my kids to figure out that I needed to stay on my medicine. Uh, I take a very mild antidepressant, and it works for me. It doesn't work every day. Some days are worse than others. Uh, I don't really know if I don't consciously keep it in my mind then i would lay in the bed all day and sleep probably 24 out of 20 i mean 23 out of 24 hours a day if i didn't uh i've got a routine i get up at a certain time i you know i try routines help me with my depression and uh and then i found that if i do for others that makes me happy you know it makes me feel good and it takes me out of my depression so i do that a lot Did you ever reach the point in your life when you just wanted to run away or, even worse, give up on life itself? Uh, yes, I have. A couple of times uh, I have. Uh, with my last marriage, I was ready to run away and never be seen or heard from again. But I think that's the power of having children. You can't always do what you want to do. So I had two kids. I couldn't run away. I just had to save myself. And, and uh, you know, that kind of hurt a lot of people, but it was the best thing for me. And I finally, I finally got the courage to do it. And so I did. 
Now, something very important I want to add that many people seem to forget or not remind themselves of often enough. Depression hurts. Depression kills and suicide is a very real problem in our world that affects so many people and their friends and their families and all of those left behind. To those listening and struggling with depression right now, please seek help. Please reach out to someone you trust and open up about what you're going through. If you have nobody you feel comfortable enough to talk to, then please pick up your phone and call 988. Again, that is 988. It is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, and it is completely free and confidential. You matter, and we want you to stay. So please, 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 I urge you, don't give up. Don't leave. Anna's struggles began in her early 20s, and she's still here. We're losing too many good people to this monster called depression, and it needs to stop. And to everyone out there, please be kind to the people you meet. You never know what somebody else is going through and how your behavior, your words, and your actions might impact them, their day, their choices. So make kindness your default. Please. Thank you. Anna, you also mentioned your battle with drug addiction, another huge problem and a horrible disease that has taken so many good people and sadly continues to do so. How did your struggles with drug addiction begin? How did that affect your life? And how did you manage to recover? Uh, it began because I was young and struggling with depression and, uh, <clears throat> A family member married somebody that was pretty high up in the drug trade. And so I had easy, free access to drugs. And uh, it was, uh, my drug of choice was cocaine. And uh, so I could get it for free. And so I stayed strung out on that for a few years. Weighed about 90 pounds. uh, And just was... uh, couldn't function without it. I think looking back at it now, I used it to try to mask my depression, you know, because when I do a couple of lines of coke, I'd be bopping around, be bopping happy, you know, and then crash and have to do more. And I was with my first husband. And of course, when you're in that kind of life, you have a lot of what I call hanger on people because they're hanging around because they get access to your drugs. And uh, they're not really in your corner. They're not really interested in uplifting you. They're just along for the ride. So I felt like that's what our life was. Kept begging him, begging him to let's straighten up, let's straighten up. He wasn't interested in it. And so finally I just had enough. And I went cold turkey, which I don't know if I would recommend it. In a way, it was a good thing because I didn't have to go through a rehab. But for about a week and I don't know, a few days, it was just pure misery because when you go cold turkey off of drugs, you uh, you uh, go through uh, some horrible pain, a lot of uh, agony, and uh, throwing up and being sick and sweating and freezing. It's just a really bad thing, but it gets you off of it pretty quick, and then, then you have to start the process of not falling back into it. And uh, 
And that for me was, uh, I never went to counseling, never went to drug rehab, but I'm an avid reader. So I read a lot of books, not necessarily on recovery, but just on how to live a better life, uh, different concepts than what I was raised with, you know, uh, I'm not a religious person now. Even though I was raised religious, my folks gave us the opportunity to think for ourselves and to make our own choices. They didn't insist that we stay Catholic or or be religious. So I did have that freedom. And through that, you know, uh, I've managed to stay sober now for over 20 years, uh, about 27 years to be a fact. In fact, uh, I've been sober I've had a few slip-ups, not with my drug of choice, but, uh, you know, over the years there's been a few slip-ups here and there, you know, but I just get right back up. I, that's pretty much the way I think about everything. If it, it's not, if it knocks you down, you got to get back up. You can't dig a deeper hole when you're on the ground. you got to get back up, and so that's what I usually try to do. What do you do now? I mean, are there still moments of temptation, and when do those moments normally crawl up? And how do you handle those? Do you still go back to reading books or um, is there anything else that gives you comfort and keeps you away from falling for that temptation? Uh, when the temptation comes up, and it's very rare now, but it's usually a time of stress, you know, a time of great stress, uh, when I feel like I can't control what's going on in, in my life, when when things feel hopeless and that's when I think, oh, man, it'd be great to snort a line and just be happy. But uh keeps me straight is I, I'm not in that life anymore, so I really wouldn't know where to get it from anymore. And uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't surround myself with those kinds of people in general. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with those kinds of people. I'm not saying those kinds of people to be derogatory, but... Uh, I just don't associate with that crowd anymore. And so uh, that helps a lot. I, that's one thing that helped me get off. I changed my circle. Uh, from the people that I knew back then, I think I still associate with maybe two of them. When I had back then, you know, you had hundreds of friends. Uh, but I, I hadn't seen most of them or talked to them in over 30 years now, you know, probably uh, getting close to it. And uh uh, I, I hope that they found their way out, but I, I, I knew I had to make a change, and that's part of the reason why I moved so far away from where I was. You know, I mean, I didn't move far, far away, but I moved a couple of cities away, uh, so I wouldn't run into people that would be triggers for me and temptation for me. You know, I always tell people trying to get off of a drug or anything: if you want to get out of a group or something, you got to change your circle of friends who you associate with, who you uh, socialize with. And that's that's been the big thing for me. I'm pretty sure that um, some of the people from that circle of friends are no longer there. Do you know if any of them ended up dying from drug overdoses? Uh, yes, you're right. There are a few that, that have died from drug overdoses. Uh, uh, I hadn't heard of any lately, but when we were younger... Uh, I just told somebody that the other day. I said, uh, that's one of the privileges of getting old. All your friends that you did bad things or ne'er-do-well things with, uh, they start passing away so people don't know your secrets unless you tell them. And uh, 
that's about the truth of it. So yeah, I've lost some of them. Uh, some of them didn't make it out. Yeah. What do you think we as people and we as a society need to change to better care for people who suffer from drug addiction? Because obviously it's, I mean, you hear it on the news that uh, the drug overdoses are on the rise and that uh, many more people slip into drug addiction every single day. Now, for anyone out there who knows somebody who battles drug addiction, what do you think an outsider can do to help those people? And what can we as a society really do to make a difference? I think as a society that uh, uh, drug addiction along with depression is about mental health. Uh, I didn't start drug uh, my drug of choice because I had trauma, but I have in the last 10 years started a little bit of working in the community. I have a sister that's very involved in the addiction community. She works for a local addiction uh, facility. And so through her, uh, trying to support her, I started uh, participating in some of their stuff and going to meetings with her, trying to support her. And so I realized that a lot of people that fall into drug addiction and stay in drug addiction is that they have childhood trauma. I think in this country, we don't, we don't recognize the trauma that we put, that our children go through, you know. We just think they're supposed to. Americans have always been, uh, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrings and buck up, you know. And that is a good thing to have because that helps you get up when you're knocked down. But sometimes if you don't have boots, it's hard to pull yourself up from bootstraps. If you have never seen it modeled, if you grew up in a household of drug addicts and that's all you know, you think that's what life is about. And it's hard to pull yourself out of that. You say when you're growing up little, you might say, I've seen this personally. They might say, I'm not going to be like my mom and dad. I'm not going to be a drunk. I'm not going to be a crackhead. I'm not going to be a meth head, whatever. And they have every intention when they're 10 years old of not being that. But yet by the time they're 20, they're that too, you know, because they don't know how to get out of it. It's like a vicious cycle. And with our stigma on mental health and seeking help, people feel like it's a weakness. I personally think it's the strong people that seek help. You know, I think it, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of, uh, lot of depth of soul or whatever you want to call that it takes gumption to say i can't do this on my own i need help i need to surround myself with somebody that has better ideas than me you know that takes that takes courage and strength because it's easy to stay the same it's always easy to stay the same and be where you're comfortable it's when you reach out and try to grow and learn something new something better than what you might have learned or been raised as that's real courage. And I think that's the problem in America. We don't see it like that. We see drug addiction and mental health as as a weakness, as a flaw in people, you know. And I guess maybe it could be a flaw in people, but we're we're people, we're all flawed. You know, some some might not struggle with drug addiction, but they go home and they don't even speak to their kids, you know, after work. And if they do, it's something gruff. To me, that's a problem because it's it's pushing your your trauma onto your kids, and they learn to treat their kids like that. You know, uh, just like men don't cry. You know, that's a total bullcrap. If you want if you want a healthy man, look for a man that cries. Women, you know, that has emotions. I mean, of course, you don't want to cry, baby, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, 
I don't, you know, men don't like to tell other men they love them. You know, that's 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 just part of America that needs work. I think we need to normalize our emotions and, and it, be, it being okay to have emotions. You know, that's I think that's a a big thing that we miss out here, and that we love to point the finger at somebody that's different than us as being wrong or being less than. Those things, they really are. I really have stressed that to my own children that, you know, just because somebody's just not like you doesn't mean they're wrong or, or their way of life is wrong. You know, uh, just because somebody's standing on the corner begging for change doesn't mean they're a piece of shit. Somebody loves them. They have a mother, they have a sister, a brother, an uncle, cousin, somebody in the world loves them. So you don't have to kick them while they're down. You know, that's the way I feel about that. Let's talk about love. <laughs> Tell me about that childhood sweetheart of yours. You were so young when you met. How did all of that unfold, and why did you end up divorcing him when you were 33? Are there any regrets from that time? Yes, uh, I met him fairly young. Uh, <clears throat> he was just a wild-eyed southern boy that I... Uh, I thought it wasn't nothing like my father. You know, every girl, they say, wants to marry her father. But at the time when you're young, you're thinking, I don't want nothing like my parents, you know. And he didn't come from a background like me. He did have a big family, but he was he was raised on, uh, you know, what people would call the other side of the track. You know, I, I was raised pretty white girl, uh, you know, nothing going on in my neighborhood, bunch of white kids playing idyllically in the front yard, nothing major, you know. The dads might get a little tipsy at the cookout or something, but that was about it. He grew up where there was fights and, you know, bars on the corner and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. So he was exciting to me. And so we started dating and uh, wound up living together for a while and then finally got married. And I had a lot of fun, and he worshipped the ground I walked on. I didn't realize it at the time. I can look back and see it now. And uh, But like I said, we were both pretty much, you know, we worked jobs. We were what you call functioning. We worked jobs, and then we'd come home, and, you know, we'd party with our friends until midnight, sleep, go back to work, and every weekend was a party. You know, uh, Friday and Saturday was all party, party, party. And uh, I just got tired of that life, and... You know, he was young too, and when I talked to him about, I wanted to start, I wanted to start a family, and uh, when I talked to him about it, you know, he'd say, "I work hard, and if I want to drink a beer and smoke a doobie when I get home, I'm going to," you know, and that went on for a few years. But I was, I wouldn't come off birth control because I thought, well, you know, I don't want my kid being retarded from him smoking pot. I didn't, I didn't really understand it all, but I just had this overwhelming thing that both parents had to be clean. So anyway, when I realized he wouldn't get clean and I was clean, uh, I finally just left him. And it broke his heart, you know. Uh, it did. We tried to reconcile. And I've always been, I'm one of the nicest people you can meet. But also, if you have to live with me, because of my depression and my Irishness, uh, I can get moody and, and kind of mean, you know. And uh, so I was just tired of that, and I just walked away. You know, I just told him, I said, come next Saturday, I'm leaving, and I won't be back, you know. 
And when Saturday came, I packed up my little bit. I didn't take anything from him. You know, I left him the house, all the furniture and stuff. I took my clothes, and and I walked out of a 20-year relationship and started over. Moved in with one of my older sisters and lived with her, and then met my other one. But the the good thing is, is now, all these years later, 20-something years later, me and him are, when I don't see him every day and I don't talk to him every day, but when I do see him, uh, it's like seeing my oldest friend. And I'm, I'm so comfortable around him, and he's so comfortable around me. And my kids, my kids say that he still loves me, but I know he loves me. I, I love him too, but we're not in love like a couple love. It's just old friendship now. And uh, and when we get together, we just laugh and have the best time. And uh, and uh, I'm thankful for that because he is a good guy. He's never remarried. He told me when I left him, he said. I'll never remarry, and he tells me often that when he dies, he's going to be thinking of me, and I'll be the last person when he takes his last breath he's thinking of. But, uh, you know, he w- I- I'm sad that he didn't remarry and have children. He would have been a good father, but uh, so far he hadn't remarried 30 years after our divorce. He still lives in the same house we lived in, and uh says he's going to leave it to me because he doesn't have anybody to leave it to. Wants to leave it to my kids, actually, is what he said. He's a good guy. I just, I think I outgrew him, you know. Uh, when you're young, you think you're going to be who you are. But you, I don't know about for men, but for women, you think you know who you are at 20, 23. But you will be nothing like you were at 23 by the time you get to my age, 57. You won't even hardly recognize that person. You change so much. You then remarried and also divorced your baby daddy, as they say in the South. <laughs> You had your kids pretty late in life, at age 37 and 39, you said. Now, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, a woman's peak reproductive years are between the late teens and the late 20s. And by age 30, fertility starts to decline, with that decline becoming more rapid once a woman reaches her mid-30s. What made you decide to have kids so late in life And were there any complications due to you having been past that mentioned mid-30 mark? Uh, I didn't think I would have kids because after I divorced my first husband, I was single. And, you know, I was like, I'm never remarrying again, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's true. Never say never. Because lo and behold, here come my children's father. Next thing I know, I fell in love with him and we got married. And, uh. With him, I lived with him about two years before I married him. And then I got married, and it was like about 35, 36, my proverbial biological clock went ding, 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 ding. And because uh, when I divorced my first, when I divorced my first husband, I really didn't think I would find somebody that soon enough and fall in love and soon enough to have children. Because like you said, I've always you know, heard that the chances of you getting pregnant older is less and less. And so I did struggle for a little while. We tried. I came off the pill. We tried. Nothing happened. So me and him both went and got tested. They said nothing was wrong. He he could have his sperm were good. I was fine. They didn't know why. They told us to try to time it, you know, watch my ovulation, blah, 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 certain times better, temperature better, blah, blah, blah. So we did that for, I don't know, six, eight months, something like that. It wasn't happening. Every month when my cycle would come, I would just be devastated that I wasn't pregnant. So, uh... We gave up in November. 
I was just like, I'm tired of this. Because every time, like I said, my cycle came, it would just be awful, you know, that I wasn't pregnant. I would just melt and be heartbroken. So I was finally like, let's just give up. You know, we're not, we're not, he already had a child from a previous marriage. And uh, so I was just like, you know, uh, just not going to have kids. And I'll never forget it was Christmas and, and my birthday's on Christmas. So we went to my folks' house and I felt like I had the flu or something. You know, I felt sick. And, and so I didn't stay long. Our family always got together at holidays. Like on Christmas, we would be at mom and dad's by noon and we wouldn't leave till nine o'clock, 10 o'clock the father, you know, that evening. I mean, it was all day long family affair Christmas was. Well, any holiday that we got together because we like to be together. And, uh, so I told my mom about two in, my hours in, I said, I think I'm going to go home. I'm not feeling good. I might be coming down with the flu or something. And I'll never forget, she cut my hand in her fa- in it, my face in her hands, and she looked at me, and she said, are you pregnant? And I said, no, I'm not pregnant, you know, because I'd just been through all that. And I went home and, you know, didn't really think about it, but by the time Monday come around and time to go to work, I thought, hmm. I'll take a pregnancy test. So I stopped, got one, took one, and it come back positive. I thought, oh, well, I must have done something wrong. So I go home, and I tell him about it. And he says, oh, so you're, you know, he's excited I'm pregnant. I said, no, I think I've done it wrong. Like, you can do a pregnancy P test wrong. So I go back, and I get another one, and it has two in it. So I take both of them. They both come come up. And I, from the struggle that I had, I still couldn't believe that I was pregnant. You know, I kept thinking, they're defective, whatever, you know. So finally, I went to the free clinic and took a pregnancy test. And I'll never forget, the lady came out, and she had a little pair of mittens. And she said, here, little pair of booties, you know, uh, crocheted little baby booties. And she said, yes, ma'am, you're pregnant, and gave them to me. And I was in shock, and so that's when I had Casey. And uh, same thing with Jenny. I wasn't trying to get pregnant, but my mom died when Casey was five months old. And... uh that threw my depression into a freaking loop, you know, because I had some postpartum depression. And uh, then when my mom died at five, when he was five months old, it just really, she was the first person we had lost in our family. And it was unexpected. We didn't know she was, we knew she was sick. We didn't know she was going to die. She had contracted strep from a heart replacement, and we didn't know. Uh, I thought she had the flu, but it was strep. And by the time they figured out it was strep, it was too late. She, we could, they couldn't save her. So it threw me into a big depression, and uh, I was really struggling. And I think if it hadn't been for my son, I might have just laid down and never got back up. Uh, I was always a daddy's girl, but once I had my baby, I switched. You know, I was mama's girl then, you know. And uh, so uh, Jenny... Uh, she just decided to come along with my daughter almost two years to the day. To her birthday's August the 15th, in case it was born August the 30th, two years before. They both had the same due date. but And then after that, I got my tie, twos tied because I was like, I'm freaking almost 40. I can't have 10 kids because it was like all of a sudden my body knew what to do, you know. And uh, so I got those two, and I think Jenny, Casey saved me and Jenny saved me. They And they have continued to save me many times when I didn't want to get up or I didn't want to face something, you know, because kids don't wait. They they demand that you do, you know. You can't lay in the bed and feel sorry for yourself because they're screaming, I'm hungry, or, or we got to go to school or something. You know, you can't just wallow in whatever you've got going on. You got to get up and function. And so I think that has saved me more than once.
you also mentioned in your intake form that you went through hell trying to give those kids a certain kind of life. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I wanted them to have a life like I grew up with, mom and dad, that loved each other and, you know, a uh, stable home. And I did manage to give them that, you know, up until I left their dad. But their dad, I don't know, and I, I think uh, when you marry somebody, you come from two different families and you don't, you don't see the world the same. You don't have the same parenting skills. You don't have the same, uh, I don't want to say values, because I feel like me and him had the same values. But he just, I don't know, he just, uh, I don't know how to explain it. If I tell, if I say it one way, it's going to sound like I'm bad-mouthing him, and I don't want to do that because I'm big on not bad-mouthing uh, uh, somebody, and especially your children's uh, other parent. But it was like after we had kids, he... Uh, He just got to where he worked all the time, and he didn't really participate in being a parent unless it was uh, scolding the kids, you know. But we went to—everything was left up to me. I had to do the doctor's appointments, uh, you know, take care of the kids, cook, clean, wash clothes, see that they had what they needed for school— you know, just whatever pertained to the kids was all on me, plus try to work too, you know. And then towards the end, he just got, I don't fault him for it because we were both so unhappy, but he just got so, uh, so grumpy. I, I called him the grumpiest man in the world. He just, he was unhappy, and so was I. And and I believe he would have probably stayed. He came, he came from a family that he really believed that if you married, you stayed until forever to the end, good, bad, or indifferent. And I came from a family like that, too, but thank goodness I had a brain, and I thought, screw this, you know, <laughs> screw this. But he, material things were real important to him, and that's why he worked all the time, because he thought it was more important to provide mere material things than the time with his family. I, on the other hand, thought we could do without a new living room couch if we could, you know, uh, spend time together with the kids, carving pumpkins, doing Easter eggs, decorating the tree, whatever, you know. Uh, I'm big on family's important. You're supposed to be at your kid's recital. You're supposed to be there if they're playing in the band concert. I don't care if it's the worst concert in the world. You're supposed to be there grinning, smiling, filming like it's the sympathy, you know, the symphony. And uh, he just didn't see things like that. And so that caused a lot of hurt between us because when I was the only parent at things like those, you know, it 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 made me mad at him, and uh, it made him mad at me that I would insist sometimes that he come to things like that because he thought it was more important to make the money. He's still like that. It's about the money. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but for me, over the years, I grew up privileged, so I don't know what it was like to be poor growing up. I, I have no clue, no concept of that. I'm the poorest now that I've ever been in my life, but I'm also happy, you know, and— uh so, again, with him, I just had enough, and I walked away. I walked away from that 22-year marriage with two kids with no alimony, no child support, no uh, part of the house, no part of our retirement, no money out of the bank. I had $300, and I left. And uh, it's been a struggle, but I don't regret it.
uh, he's remarried now, and I'm hoping he'll be happy. And I have very limited contact with him over the kids. Uh, I still hold a lot of resentment for the things that I feel like he did me wrong. But I work every day to let those go because I don't like holding that. And uh, I try to build him up like Superman to my kids. They're 19 and 17 now, and they're starting to see that maybe he's not Superman. But I always tried to make him Superman because I think it's important that kids think their dad is Superman, especially when they're young. You know, it's time enough for them to find out that he's human when he's when they get grown. So, uh, uh, but I think with him and I, we're at a pretty good point. Uh, I think we get along really well as long as a new wife isn't around. <laughs> For some reason, she doesn't like me. I mean, I've never done anything to her, but she just doesn't care for my company. And uh, so there's been a few times that we've had to do kids, and she just looks like she smells shit when she sees me, you know. And, uh, of course, me, you know, I'm 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 pretty friendly, and especially when I realize that she thought she's didn't like me then I'm always real cheerful and happy around her you know just to be the bitch that I am you know but no uh I don't regret leaving any of them I don't regret walking away from everything but that's the my little place now is a dump and uh and it's nothing fancy but it's mine and it's paid for and I don't have to walk away from it you know I can live there you can fall down around me but I don't have to walk around away from it you know like I have uh the things that I miss both about leaving both my husbands, I've always been an avid guard, gardener. And uh, I had a beautiful garden at my first husband, you know, with him. We worked on that yard and made a beautiful garden. I had to walk away from it. And then with my kid's dad, I worked on that yard, worked on that yard, and planted beautiful things and had to walk away and leave them all. So now when I plant something, that's what I say. I might not live to see you grown, but I ain't going to have to walk away from you, you know. I think you can be very proud of everything that you have done and that you continue to do for those kids. And filling in the blanks for somebody who's either not present at all or who's only partially present is one of the biggest challenges a parent can face because you are always forced to put on two hats for those kids. So I think you you know you deserve a hug, first of all, but you also deserve a medal for doing that because... There are many parents who are not there for their kids and who don't stand up for them. So what are those kids doing now? You said Casey's 19, um, so I guess he's getting ready to join the workforce. Um, What are his plans? What are your daughter's plans? What's going on there? Uh, My son uh, is uh, still struggling to find exactly who he is, but... uh, he doesn't believe, I personally think he needs to go to law school because he would be a great public defender and maybe one day a Supreme Court judge because he is so fair and so level in the way he thinks about things. Uh, his fourth grade teacher told me she, when he was in the fourth grade, she said, and I hope he grows up to be a lawyer because he's going to make a great Supreme Court judge one day, is what she told me. when he was, And she was right. But he doesn't see that. He doesn't think, uh, he hated school because... Uh, uh, he is autistic, but he's very high functioning. Most people don't know that he's autistic, but he struggles with classwork. It's not that he doesn't understand just something about his autism. He can't organize enough to do classwork where he feels comfortable and feels like he can be successful at it. So I can't get him to go to college. So 
he's working with his dad uh, to have a part-time business doing landscape work, grass cutting. So he does that, picks up a odd job here and there right now. He's really kind of at loose ends, but I know when I was growing up, it was like you had XYZ, you, you grew up and you graduated, you got a job, went to college, blah, blah, blah. It was just laid out, bam, 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 you had to do. I've tried not to do that to my kids. You know, I've, I'm trying to let them uh, not be pressured. You know, like when I was growing up, the mantra was you grew up, you were 18, you got out, got out, you you left. You know, you started, you fly, baby, you know. And while I want mine to fly, I'm not willing to push him straight out. of. It. I feel like he's still a kid, even though he's 19 and society says he's grown. He's still a kid, you know, and he can live with me for a while. Now, I don't want him living with me when he's 40, you know. But right now, it's fine. And then my daughter, Jenny, she's so much like me. She thinks she's nothing like me. She doesn't look like me. She doesn't act like me, which is totally not true. Everybody knows that kids are like you, whether they think they are or not. She graduated high school early this December. Uh, so she's out of high school. She's 17. She wants to be a dental hygienist. Uh, she, like me, has fell in love with a little country boy. I don't think he's a wild boy like I fell in love with, but I he's he's a he's a good little boy and he worships the ground she walks on. They've been dating about a year and a half now. And uh he just if she says jump, he says how high and he loves every minute of it. I think that she'll probably wind up marrying him. I was teasing my sister the other day, I said, You know, Jeannie's gonna get married as soon as she turns eighteen and and her Aunt Patty was like, Oh my god, I hadn't even met him, just freaking out. And I was just teasing her, and she said, Aunt Patty, you don't know when you're being teased, you know. She said, I'm not going to marry at 18, you know. So she, I think she has learned a little. She says she doesn't take marriage advice from me because, you know, I've been divorced twice. But I think she is smart enough to know that she needs to live a little bit and grow a little bit before she commits to being married. And they can do it together, you know. And that's what I told her. I said, you don't necessarily have to marry him right away. You know, y'all can live life and explore a little bit together. And then if you still want to get married, you can. Just live a little bit, you know. So I'm hoping that's what she's going to do, you know. According to UTMB Health, stroke kills 140,000 Americans each year. That is one out of every 20 deaths and it is also a leading cause of serious long-term disability. Sadly, you also had a stroke, Anna. What happened? How did it end up changing your life? And are you still dealing with the aftermath of your stroke? Uh, I had my stroke two years before I left the kid's dad. And all I can say is I was on... I didn't know it at the time, but I was so unhappy. I smoked cigarettes. And I was smoking like a freight train. And yes, I was doing the things I had to do, getting my kids up, taking them to school, blah, 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 working a job, whatever. But I was also smoking like a freaking freight train. I think I was smoking like two packs a day. And uh wasn't taking care of myself, wasn't exercising, wasn't eating right, wasn't sleeping right, you know, just nothing right. And my body was giving me signals, but I just ignored them because I grew up, when you grew up in a big family, I don't know, my mom, she was she was like, you could be dead, and she'd be like, oh, you'll be all right. 
you know, we wasn't, she home doctored us a lot. You know, we did go to the doctor, but she just wasn't very sympathetic like some mothers, you know, about, I guess she had too many of us. She couldn't, she couldn't dote on us like that. So that made me grow up to think that you just push through, push through. Yeah, things feel bad. You know, you just push through, keep going. You got things to do. And so I did that for years and years. And when I finally had the stroke, I had it on work job. And, uh, I have, uh, struggled with my weight after the kids, you know, losing the baby weight, which can't be called baby weight at this point, you know, 19 years later, but I've never been the same. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I dang, uh, I thought that maybe my blood sugar had dropped, you know, cause I was feeling kind of wheezy and my coworkers were saying, no, no. And I told one of them I worked with, I said, just go get me a pack of M&Ms, you know, I'll be all right. And I put them in my mouth and I thought they were in there, but they were looking at me so they could see it dripping out of my left side, you know. Anyway, they wanted to call the ambulance. I said, no, no, call my husband because we both worked in Greer. And so uh, he come and got me and took me to the to the uh, family doctor, and the family doctor right away took a look at me, and he's like, you need to go to the emergency room. We'll call and tell him you're there. So we go to the emergency room. They get me in. They hook me up, and, and this is my stroke. You hear people say stroke does different things, but mine – just brought out the meanness in me. And so I was laying on the table. They had me hooked up, and it was a male nurse, and he was like, how many packs of cigarettes you smoke a day? Cigarette this, cigarette that, cigarette, 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 you know? And so I was like, God, in my mind, I was like, God damn, I want to smoke a cigarette. So I said, I want to smoke a cigarette. He said, ma'am, you can't smoke a cigarette. So I was like, don't tell me, young man, I can't smoke a cigarette. You know, and he was like, you can't smoke in here. And he had me up. I said, either you unhook me. And let me go out and smoke a cigarette. I'm going to unhook myself. So anyway, he unhooked me. They made me sign papers, and I went home. This is how stubborn and mean I can be when I'm not thinking right. So I went home. I made Marty take me home. That's the kid's dad. Take me home. Kid's there. You know, I've had a stroke. <laughs> and I'm laying in the bed. I say, I just need to take a nap. He's he's done tried to talk me into staying, and I won't have it, you know. So I'm back there in the bed. And thank goodness he was smart enough to call my sisters. I have... I actually have five sisters because my parents adopted a girl from Germany when when uh, I was about eight years old. So she's my oldest sister. Her name's Hildegard. So he calls my sisters, and all of them didn't come, but two of them did. Two from North Carolina come down, my sister Amy and my sister Dutch, and they basically come back and said, get your ass up out of this bed. You're going back to the hospital. And I did. And I wound up staying like two weeks in the hospital, and I was lucky because I recovered. I don't have any side effect from it. You know, I feel like my left eye droops a little bit still, but like my left side works and stuff. It didn't at the time. I had to go through therapy and stuff. And the only reason I did that is because I was just too damn mean. You know, I just wasn't going to let it win, you know. And that's the way I face life. You know, I try to be easygoing, but when chips get down, I'm just too damn mean to give up. And I'll be like, I'll show you. And that's what I, the therapist told me if I didn't do what she said, that I would never have the use of my left side. So I said, oh, yes, I will. If it ain't nothing to do, and I picked the arm up, I bent these fingers down, do this, you know, shot her a bird, you know. And uh, and I, I got lucky. But I do face, you know, I hadn't smoked since then. That was eight years ago. Uh, coming up on eight years. In May, it'll be eight years. Uh, I hadn't smoked a cigarette since then, and uh, which was a blessing i don't i don't believe in god but my sister debbie said that god killed that part of your brain with that stroke so you wouldn't smoke no more i said okay well thank you you know but uh 
I hadn't wanted a cigarette. I I didn't have to. I had tried to quit smoking a thousand times before that. I even tried patches, gums, Nicorette, you know, whatever, a prescription one time for it, you know. But it, I just always went back, always went back. But after I had, and my sisters would say, when are you going to quit? And I'd say, oh, well, it's going to put me six feet under. Well, when it almost did, I was like, okay, I get it. Of course, now I have to take medicine, you know. Take about four pills related to the stroke, and I'll have to take them my whole life, which I hate. I never took a pill before I had, I never was a pill head when I was a drug addict. And now I have to take that. I have to take an aspirin and a couple other things. And, uh, you know, every every year I make it, there's a less chance that it's going to reoccur, you know. Uh, so it was a, in my brain, you know, it's a brain stroke. And, uh, so, but that helped me see things clearly because it was like when you come that close to dying, you really it clarifies your life. I didn't see my life flashing for me, but it clarified what I wanted my life to be like. And I don't have the life that I want yet, but I have a lot of the life that I want. And so, if I don't get the rest of it, I can be happy with what I've got because I have peace in my life. And that's what I was looking for peace. As if you didn't have enough lemons to make lemonade, life then once again almost ended when a drunk driver almost killed you. Can you tell us about that? I had just separated from my kid's father in September, and my daughter Jenny and I were coming back from Greer, and we were about two blocks from the house. It's true. The accident happens closest to your house. And we were coming down, and he decided that he was going to turn left right when we got to him, and he hit the front of our car. And uh, it threw us off the road into this big gully and almost flipped us. And I didn't think I was hurt. You know, it wasn't—it was scary because the I'd never had the airbags come out in the car before on me. So I thought the car was on fire, so I was trying to get my daughter out. She was scared to death, you know, as a hectic scene. But anyway, he got arrested for— he was he he, he was a uh, I shouldn't say drunk, drunk driver. He was an impaired driver. He was on pills. He was messed up on pills. And so uh, neither one of us went to the went in the ambulance and stuff. And so about three days later, it just hit me. You know my uh, my back was messed up, and I tried to. I went to the doctor, and you know now they won't give you pills. Uh, they won't. Get, they don't want to give you pain pills because everybody's got such an addiction to them, and so even when you really need them, they don't want to give them to you. They give you Tylenol, and Tylenol is a great product, but when you have major trauma, <laughs> it don't really cut it too good. So I struggled with that, and uh, that's really the only time I felt like I could kill myself. I remember probably about six months in. His insurance, my insurance, you know, going back and forth that they should pay, da-da-da-da-da. It was just a big mess. Uh, I had been laying in the bed, and my back was just killing me, and it was about 3 in the morning, and I called my sister Debbie. She lives closest to me. And I said, I want you to get Terry's, her husband. I said, I want you to get Terry's gun and come down here and shoot me. I was so much in pain. I just was ready to end it. <laughs> and if I'd had a gun myself, I believe I might have done it that night because the pain was just excruciating. And so she didn't come right away. She came pretty early, you know, and, and she was like, no, I'm not bringing the gun, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. And so uh, 
our family has a saying, calling the troops. And uh, so that's what she did. She called in the troops, and then my sisters uh, got on the job and finally, you know, made them understand that I was going to need better treatment. And and that's how I wound up with uh, six, six rods and 12 screws in my back, you know. And they... Uh, they hurt a little, but not too bad. I can't do like I used to do, but at least I'm walking around and do what I need to do, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, that's the closest I came to dying is that. Uh, and I think it was a combination because I just left the kid's dad with nothing, so I was really struggling to make ends meet. Life was just hard. And then that got through on top of it, and it was like, really? You know, kick me in the teeth while I'm down? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so... uh yeah, that was that's probably when I look at my life. I think that's probably the hardest experience I've had, and I know it doesn't sound like much, but it was pretty hard on me. How does living and surviving against all odds make you feel? Does it have an impact on how you now live your life? I think I touched on this earlier. Uh, I've always been of the belief that no matter what happens, you have to get back up. Uh, Life's not idyllic. It doesn't go the way we plan. Uh, you can't control everything that happens in your life. You know, flood comes, storm comes, robber robs you, you know, whatever. Somebody hits you and it's not your fault. You can't control every aspect of your life. So you have to learn to just roll with punches, you know. You have to learn to get up and, and start over if you have to, you know. It's not the end of the world. Whatever happens to you, it's not the end of the world. And whatever you feel like is the worst thing, it's not the worst thing. And if it is the worst thing, you can you can get out of it. You can make it better. Uh, you know, and uh, I, you know, some might not think I have an idyllic life, but I think I've had a pretty good life. I, I'm happy with my life. I feel blessed, even though... Uh, I'm not religious, but I don't know another word. I'm I'm happy with my life. I feel like it's been a good life, and if I die tomorrow, I'm satisfied with it. I don't want to die tomorrow, but I'd like to do a few more things. You know, I'd like to see grandbabies eventually. I might be 103, but I'd still like to see them. You know, so uh, I I think it's part of always looking forward and getting up. Maybe, uh, yeah. Last but not least. We have got to talk about the belly dancing. <laughs> what got you interested in pursuing that at age 56, and how is it going with that? I uh, saw a class at the community center uh, for belly dancing, and so I thought, you know what? Maybe it'll help me lose this big fat belly I got. <laughs> it didn't, it hadn't. But I went, and uh, I just enjoyed it. I talked to another friend of mine, Patty, into going. And uh, she wasn't used to stepping out of her norm. And uh, I think that's what makes you grow to find things and experience things and people that aren't just like you. It makes your life richer. If you know other things than what you were raised on and what your family is traditionally all about, if you reach out and you learn things and you experience new things, it makes you richer. It makes your life richer. And not money-wise, but culture-wise. And uh, I think, I think that's uh, that's what I was seeking, and uh, and so I liked it. And I'm not good at it. I just tease about being belly dancer extraordinaire, uh, but I enjoyed it, and I still I'm practicing. I still do it. I watch videos and try to learn, but 
trying to be a belly dancer at 56, 57 years old isn't ideal. I'd start much earlier if I, <laughs> if I knew now. Thank you so much for being on my show and speaking to me, Anna. I really appreciate you sharing your story and inspiring others. And perhaps I can have you back for a follow-up if people send us some interesting questions for you. What do you think? I've enjoyed it. And yes, I will. I would come back and answer questions if anybody wants to ask a question. And there you have it, my little thought evolutionists. To me, one of the most remarkable things about Anna is her passion for helping others and that big old Southern heart. What a character with oh so much soul. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode of Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. It is that time of day now for me to ask you for a little tiny favor. If you liked this episode, please do a few things for me. First and foremost, always be kind to each other and be an ally to those who may not have the strength to have their own voices heard. Secondly, please rate, review, and share this podcast. The stories of Anna, Jennifer, Dustin, and all those others you have not met yet deserve to be heard and shared. A genuine and very personal thank you for that from me to you. Also check out our website, www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com to find out more about our guests. There may even be a few photos. We also have a merch store in case you are super passionate about this podcast and want to support it and want to tell the world that you are a thoughtvolutionist and story sharer. You may also fill out our contact form on the website or email us at info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com or call our hotline at 864-501-5033. Again, that is 864-501-5033 to leave a voicemail message, either to ask my guests some questions they may answer in a follow-up episode or to let me know that you would like to be on the show yourself and that you have a story to tell. I really cannot wait to hear from you all. And again, from the bottom of my shriveled little heart, <laughs> thank you for being here, for living and trying to evolve on topics you might not have given much thought before. Now, I'm also so very grateful for every single person willing to be raw, genuine and exposed, willing to tell their very own story on this podcast. It is brave and takes a great deal of courage. Everyone is welcome here. There's no judgment, no ulterior motive, nothing. Just a dude with some questions and a microphone for you to use. Before I say goodbye, once more to those out there struggling, perhaps hanging on by a thread today, you are the reason I'm doing this. Because you and your story and your life, it all matters. If today is extra hard, please call 988. Again, that is 988. Don't leave. Please stay. I will talk to you all next week, and I love you all. Be safe out there.